You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's sermon is preached by Nate Penley. So we're going to pick up in our series, we've been working our way through 1 Peter, and today we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. 1 Peter 3, chapter 13 through 17. Now, Ken has informed me he's got a very important date to be to this afternoon, so I need to be timely at this. Uh, So I ended up having to cut a little bit of my sermon out because it was a little too long. So hopefully you guys can stick with me. Uh, But I wanted to give some review, and I wanted to take a little time to go through in a little more detail, but we're going to I'm going to try to give you ESPN highlights for the last two and a half chapters. We're just going to look at highlights because I want to bring out the point that there are two main themes in this book as we work our way through it, as we're talking about uh, what are the main themes of Peter. So as you're turning there, I'm just going to kind of throw these out here. You can write them down if you want, but like I say, they're going to come rapid fire. So the first one, as we look in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 2, Peter mentions the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. We see a call for holiness there. In chapter 2, verses 1, Peter tells us to rid ourselves of evil behavior, saying, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. In chapter 2, 11 through 12, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Chapter 2, verses 22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Peter tells of the holiness of Christ as an example for us to follow. And in chapter 3, verse 4, it says, Peter addressed by, As Peter addresses the women by saying, But let your adorning be the hidden persons of heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. And then in, finally in chapter 3, verse 11, it says, Let him turn away from evil and do good. It is clear that holiness is, a, is the main theme of this book. And Peter also speaks of the logical conclusion of holy living. So going back to chapter 1, verse 1, Peter addresses the, his audience as exiles. The definition of an exile is a state of being barred from one's native country, typically for political or punitive reasons. He wasn't just calling them exiles as a term of endearment. In verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter openly admits that this specific audience is experiencing trials. In chapter 1, verse 11, he, it says he, and that he being the prophets, predicted the sufferings of Christ, once again showing Christ as an example for us to follow. In chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Once again, names are used to imply hardships to its readers. In chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In this verse here, Peter seems to think that they uh, will be spoken evil against them for some reason. 
And then in chapter 2, verses 20b, it says, but, when, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. They were called to suffer for doing good. And then finally, in chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And in this one, we see an implicit call for suffering. He says, Don't repay evil, expecting that you will have evil done to you. So now let's jump into our text in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. It says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Right out of the gate here, I'm almost tempted to ask, is, is Peter schizophrenic? What is he talking about? Who is there to harm you for doing what is good? He just spent two and a half chapters telling us, admitting that people are already suffering and telling us we need to prepare for suffering. And now he says, who is there to harm you for what is good? Well, I certainly don't think that Peter is schizophrenic. Rather, I think that Peter is beginning to summarize the case that he's been making for the last two and a half chapters. Given the context, this statement only makes sense as a general wisdom principle. After all, it would stand to reason that doing good for others, doing good works for others, would cause them to appreciate your good behavior. Who doesn't like being treated kindly? Who doesn't like being treated graciously? Who doesn't like being treated fairly? But similar to the concept of Christ as a cornerstone that we saw in chapter 2, our good work, good works, does more than just draw people to Christ. Our good behavior, even though it is objectively good for all, will be at odds with the unregenerate heart. Our holy behavior will be a stumbling block for those with an unregenerate heart. And this is why, in one fashion or another, there will be suffering for righteousness' sake. Peter has been building for almost three full chapters now that what our Christian witness is supposed to look like and what its impending results will be when we achieve a faithful Christian witness. So let's take a look at the cornerstone passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. It says, As you come to him a living stone, the stone being Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Because of Christ's redeeming work, we have been brought together to be built into the house of God. When we see the works of God, when we see the works of God in Jesus Christ, we are drawn to him and brought into the family of God. And as we continue with good works and holy living that God has called us to, then our good works bring the attention of others to the redeeming work of Christ. This is the good news that draws God's children to himself. But this isn't the only thing that our good works accomplish. In verse 7 it states, 
So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Here we see that Christ, as the Holy One, is an offense to those who disobey. And if we are holy as Christ is holy, then we will also be an offense to those who disobey. This is crucial for understanding what a biblical Christian witness is. Sadly, in our day and age and context, most have come to believe that our Christian witness is rooted by the deep theological term of niceness rather than holiness. It's impossible to read the book of 1 Peter and think that our Christian witness is rooted in anything other than holiness. Yet making our Christian witness about being nice is an easy trap to fall into. After all, who doesn't like being liked? And it would, very, it would be very easy to think that if we get people to like us, then our behavior is good, and that our behavior is an effective gospel presence, and that our behavior is biblical, but is merely getting people to like us the standard for achieving a biblical Christian witness. Scripture speaks extensively about our behavior that will be displayed to a watching world, and it speaks of our good behavior and its impending results. It speaks of its bad behavior and its impending results. But it also speaks, uh, in 1 Peter 3, we see the foundation of our Christian witness isn't necessarily its results. It is holiness. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor the Christ as Lord, the Lord as holy. Holiness is no doubt the theme of this book by Peter, and he continually is continually making it clear to its readers that, all, that holiness is the foundation of our Christian witness. A Christian witness that is to be seen by all of our earthly relationships, whether that be relationships with our government, our employers, our husbands and wives, or anyone in the family, all of our earthly relationships are to be rooted in holiness. As Pastor Scott has taken the time to work through this text of 1 Peter, we've been able to see that starting in chapter 2, the foundation is laid for our Christian witness. A Christian witness is built on Christ, our solid rock, a holy rock, the one and only God-man. And since we are being built into Christ, this is why Peter calls us sojourners and exiles in verse 11 of chapter 2. We have been called out from this world and into the body of Christ. Therefore, this world is not our home. We have been called out of this world and into Christ. To quote the old-time gospel classic made popular by Jim Reeves, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And if you have declared Christ as your Lord, then no matter your eschatology, this statement rings true. We are not our own. We have been called out of this world of death and decay, and have been brought into the family of God with abundant blessings. This world is not my home. I am a stranger in this world. However, since we are still on this earth and in the flesh, and as we strive to live holy lives that our Heavenly Father has called us to, then we proclaim his lordship over all. Our holy behavior will signify our allegiance to the one true king over all of creation. And this will affect every relationship that we will have on this earth. After all, this is the foundation of the Great Commission found in Matthew 28, where it says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, 
There is a reason that we go and make disciples. It is because Jesus is king. And as we represent him with a proper and holy Christian witness, we proclaim his lordship over all. And this is why we will inevitably find ourselves at odds with this world. We will be at odds with a government that doesn't bow the knee to Christ as Lord. We'll be at odds with our employer that doesn't submit to God as king. We'll be at odds with our family that doesn't declare Christ as Savior. And this is what Peter was describing in the second half of chapter 2 and into 3. And it is why Peter is trying to prepare us for conflict and suffering. Conflict is inevitable for hearts that worship different masters. So, we must be prepared to maintain a faithful presence in the world that God has placed us in. Thankfully, Jesus has left us just such an example to follow. This idea of being in exile should remind us of why we don't have to fear men. Back to chapter 3 and verse 14, we are commanded to have no fear of man. And if we truly understand the gospel, and if we have put our faith in Christ as our Savior, And if we are now brought into the body of Christ, what do we have to fear other than God himself? We are exiles because we have been bought with a price. God has caused us to be born again into a living hope according to his great mercy. And what can man do about that? Can a man call down everlasting judgment on my soul when God has forgiven me? Can a man deny my righteousness when God has called me out of this world and given me his righteousness? Can a man steal my wealth when God has promised me an inheritance of riches that can't be measured by anything this world has to offer? What can man do over me? We sang uh, Martin Luther's uh, famous hymn this morning, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I think the third and fourth verse really answers this question that we have before us of what power does man possess? In the third verse, it says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours, through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. What can man do to the will of God? Man is powerless to stand in opposition to God, yet we often fall into the trap of fearing men more than we fear God. Proverbs 9.10 states that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And most of us here could probably recite that verse from memory, and I'm sure most of us would probably say, yes, amen, I believe that. But do our, back, our actions really back that up? If we truly fear God, then is there any logical reason to fear men? I get this is easier said than done, but if we take a moment to reflect on our own actions, do they show that we truly fear God, or do our actions show that we fear men? Does our actions and speech show that we believe that the gospel really is the power to save? Or do we think it needs help from our 21st century marketing skills? Do our actions show that we believe in the historical reliability of God's word that says the earth is only a few thousand years old? Or has our presuppositions of science caused us to think that seems a little crazy? 
Do we believe that miraculous signs and wonders happened as they were described in the Bible? Or has our modern sensibilities taught us to know better than our superstitious forefathers? Do our actions show that we believe all of Scripture's moral teachings, especially the ones pertaining to gender roles, sexuality, slavery and submission, to hell and eternal conscious torment, or even just to the holiness of God? The truth is that there is very little in Scripture that our current culture will find appealing since the God of Scripture is holy. This demands that all glory goes to him. So if we have to diminish or hide the holiness of God in order to make him more palatable to the public, can we say that we truly fear God? Or are we fearing man? If we don't just talk about the parts of Scripture that are hard to understand, or just avoid the teaching on parts that are really unpopular to our current culture, then we might just be more effective at reaching people for Jesus, right? This is one of the many pitfalls of the Jesus-makes-your-life-better style of evangelism. I was actually driving in, I don't even know where, it was out in Tenbuktu, Equinunk. I think that's, you probably know where that is. It was out there. And uh, I was driving out in the middle of nowhere, there was this field, and I saw this sign on the side of the road. And it had three circles on the left with lines through it, and it had, I couldn't tell what was in there, it had things that you weren't supposed to do with these lines. And then over here on the right-hand side, they had a picture of the Ten Commandments. And it was painted on this sign. And the script above says, like, don't do these. Just try the Ten Commandments. It kind of struck me a little funny. Like, just try it out. Like, you know, like a pair of pants or a shirt. And you go into the fitting room, you put on your shirt. And, you know, mine always fit a little tight in the chest and around the biceps, you know. Um, I'm getting some laughs there because that's definitely not true. But, uh, you know, just try it on. Just try on the Ten Commandments. See how you like it. Uh, and I've heard this done with, with even Jesus. Just try Jesus out. He'll make your life better. Take him home for the weekend. That's, that's, that's not how this works. Uh, we don't try out Jesus. We don't sell Jesus. We proclaim his lordship as we accomplish the Great Commission. This style of evangelism will always fall short in unifying true believers. While it is true... It is a true statement that Jesus will make your life better. It is important that it is clearly understood what better is. Our lives are better because we have Christ, because he has taken away our sin, because he has given us his righteousness. It is better because we have an inheritance that is not of this world. And this will give us the hope necessary to make it through the trials that this world will throw at us. We are called to proclaim the lordship of Christ, not to sell it. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a product that can be sold. We can't package it in a way that is easier to swallow. We do no one any favors when we hide the parts of God's word that are hard to swallow. And let's be honest with ourselves, this is an easy trap to fall into. We might tell ourselves that if we give them the gospel with both barrels, that will just push people away. You know, first we have to win the respect for the gospel to be effective. And what's the best way to win the respect? Well, we've got to hide the offensive parts of the gospel and the offensive parts of God's word. Let's just give them the good parts first. And after all, it is called the good news, right? And look at the results of this kind of church model. It puts butts in seats, am I right? Doing this creates a community which is enticing to everyone, am I right? And shouldn't the gospel be attractive to everyone? As we've already discussed, the cornerstone isn't attractive to everyone. Some will hate it. If our gospel is attractive to everyone, 
then our gospel is, at the very least, an extremely truncated one, or at the very worst, a false one. This kind of watered-down gospel will carelessly bring unbelievers into the flock. It will unequally yoke believers with unbelievers. But we are called to be unified around the holiness of Christ, not to be unified with unbelievers. Back in our text, verse 15 says of chapter 3, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. As we maintain a faithful Christian witness that is rooted in holy behavior, this will ultimately lead to situations where we should be prepared to defend our faith. This word defense comes from the Greek word apologia. Some like to call it apologia. Some like to say a gif. I like to say jif, so I say apologia. And while I don't think Peter is limiting, uh, so I'll stick, I'll stick with apologia. So if we call it, uh, where am I at here, sorry? The common use of this word has its roots in a courtroom setting. When a charge is brought against a person, it is the job of the defendant to make his defense or apologia. And while I don't think that Peter is limiting this exhortation to civil courts, it is helpful for us to understand the word in this way. As we've already mentioned before, that our faithful Christian witness will inevitably put us at odds with unbelievers in every area of life that we interact with others, whether that be civil relationships, work relationships, family relationships. Um, And all of these situations, we should not only be prepared to give a defense, but we should expect the need to give it. Often, when this verse is used in our modern context, It is accompanied with tons of archaeological evidences, scientific evidences, and philosophical arguments for why God exists, or why the Bible is reliable and it's a historical document, or why the earth is only a few thousand years old, or why the age of the earth doesn't even matter as it pertains to the reliability of Scripture. And these arguments are given as a sort of pre-evangelism to convince people that God is real, and that the God of the Bible is the one true God, and that the faith in this God is the only way to heaven. And while many of these evidences are great and true and encouraging, I think that making this verse about those things fundamentally misses the point that Peter is trying to make here. Since the context of 1 Peter is primarily about holiness and suffering, this passage must be interpreted in that context. Peter has been warning his readers to expect conflict for their holy behavior. So when conflict comes, we shouldn't be caught off guard. And I think the important question that Peter is getting at is when trials come, Will you be prepared? Another important question that I think is relevant to this text is who is the defense for? Many point to this passage as a way of saying that we should have good apologetics so that we can, point, so that we can be ready to convince others of the truth. And while there is truth to the fact that our defense of the truth will be for the good of those who stand in opposition to us, I don't think this passage means that the benefits of our defense is limited to our opposition. We often forget that apologetics is a defense. And who's the defense for? It's for the ones being attacked. We need to be prepared. Peter makes it clear that apologetics is for all believers, and it is, a, it is beneficial for all. It's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that apologetics is strictly for pastors with special skills and special training. 
um, or that it's for academics and professors who give long lectures and go to debates, write academic articles and journals, um, or that it's just for those intellectual types, or as I like to call them, the nerds. You know, they read lots of philosophy books, listen to podcasts, they love to debate, they love to wax on eloquently about some specific topic to show off their intellectual superiority. And many of us are happy to let it be, let them have it, you know, and we say, let apologetics be for anyone but me. And I've got all the excuses. You know, I'm not very smart. I'm not a reader. You know, I don't, I don't think that deeply. I'll leave this to more qualified people, this area of apologetics. In Ephesians chapter 4, you don't have to turn there. I'll read the verse very quickly for you for time's sake. But in Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 12, we see a list of jobs for the church, for equipping the church. And it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So real quickly, he gives a list of jobs there for the church. The, the list goes as this, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Notice, the office of apologist is not to be found anywhere on this list. The reason it's not there is because it is not a job for a specific person at a specific time. It is for all of God's people. We are all called to be apologists. We are all called to defend our hope. The call for apologetics is largely a call for us to be prepared so that we can withstand the attacks that will inevitably come against our faith. Attacks that will try to draw us away from the truth. The popular use of apologetics in our day has been, an organ, has been to organize facts and logic to be used on the offensive, to be used as a way of convincing others of the truth, when in fact, the very meaning of the word apologia is not offense, but defense. Apologetics is crucially important for us as believers to be prepared for the refining fires that will inevitably come. This has been difficult for me to watch, uh, as so many in my generation find themselves unprepared to withstand the trials that have come our way. And with the growing distance between popular culture and the truths of Scripture, I believe we're going to continue to see even more in the next generation fall away from the faith. In September of 2017, Aaron Wren published an article called The Lost World of American Evangelicalism. And in this article, Wren makes a framework for understanding our world as it pertains to Christians and culture. This framework is called the three worlds. And in this article, he gives three world categories for understanding Christian identity in this growing secular culture that I find incredibly helpful. And I want to take a minute to just go through it really quickly. It's a pretty easy concept, but I'll go through it here so we can understand what's going on. So from the beginning of our country's founding till 1994, we lived in what he called the positive world. And this is described like this. To be seen as a religious person and one who exemplifies traditional Christian norms is a social positive. Christianity is a status enhancer. In some cases, failure to embrace those norms would hurt you. So this is the positive world structure. And then after 1994 to 2014, we enter what he calls the neutral world. And this is described as this. Christianity is seen as a social neutral attribute. It no longer had a dominant status in society. But to be seen as a religious person is not a knock either. It's more like a personal affectation or hobby. Traditional norms of behavior retain their residual force in this culture. And then finally we come into 2014 where we entered the negative world. Positive world, neutral world, and negative world. The negative world is described like this. In, the world, in this world, being a Christian is a social negative. 
especially in high-status positions. Christianity, in many ways, is seen as undermining the social good. Traditional norms are expressly repudiated. And he gives three examples of this uh, to prove his point. So in the positive world, he has this uh, point here. In 1987, the Miami Herald reported that Senator Gary Hart had been having an affair and cavorting with the woman in question on his yacht. He was forced to drop out of the presidential race. So we see in 87, while they're still in the positive world element, not adhering to social Christian norms cost him his presidential bid. In the neutral world, in 1998, the Drudge Report broke the story that Bill Clinton had been having an affair with intern Monica Lewinsky, including sex acts in the Oval Office. Bill Clinton was badly damaged by the scandal, but survived it as the Democratic Party rallied around him in public, and the public decided that his private behavior was not relevant to the job. So, and now in, uh, for the negative world, remember this was written in 2017, so this is a year after Donald Trump was elected, and so in the negative world, in 2017, Donald Trump, whose entire persona, his sexual antics, excess consumption, boastfulness, etc., which is all antithetical to the tradition, tradi tra traditional cr Christianity, is elected president. The Access Hollywood tape, for example, had no effect on voter decisions about him. If you have time, I do encourage you to go through this article. It's a very thought-provoking read. I have several pretty significant disagreements of some of his analysis, but overall I find this three-world framework very helpful in understanding where we are, where we've come from, and where we're going. And this framework uh, is very helpful for understanding the popular trend of people that are deconstructing from Christianity. We have a generation of people that were largely raised in a neutral world that were not properly prepared to withstand the trials that have come as a result of this negative world. And the results of this shift on my generation have been ugly to say the least. I've seen every reaction in my generation from hiding parts of God's word that they're ashamed of, to reinterpreting the entire Bible, uh, to full-blown apostasy. But at the root of all these failings is what I'd want to get at. Once we entered into the negative world where we had to actually count the cost of our Christian beliefs, we found that we were not prepared to defend our faith. And I'm not prepared to point the finger at who I think is primarily responsible for this mess, especially being that messes of this size usually are not directly created by one single person or entity. But thanks to the inspired writings of the Apostle Peter, I do know what the solution is. In chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verses 13 through 21, we're going to take a look at that. Peter gives us the foundation for faith and hope where he says, starting in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, <clears throat> not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, 
who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a, from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. We have faith and hope because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we have been ransomed, because we have been bought with a price, and we know that this is true because of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit giving us new hearts that desire to know Christ more, to know the one true Christ as he has chosen to reveal himself through his scriptures. We must be continually searching his scriptures, learning and growing in the scriptures. We must have a worldview that is shaped by scripture. Scripture must be our foundation for understanding everything. In our world, if our worldview is not built upon the unshakable stone of Christ himself as revealed in his word, we will fail when the temptations come. Peter says in chapter 2, verses 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Make no mistake, if we don't first have victory over our own flesh, then we will not stand true when trials come. The epidemic of faith deconstruction that we have seen largely comes due to the fact that we have not taken holiness seriously. We have become lax in our standards of acceptable entertainment. Are we truly pursuing holiness and actively seeking to crush the passions of the flesh through the power of his word? Or are we putting ourselves in situations where we are, where we are ill-equipped to fight the power of sin? This is so important to understand and evaluate properly in our lives because the spoils of this war is our very soul. First, we must fight the battle over our own soul before we will be equipped to fight the powers of darkness. My generation has largely lost this battle against the passions of the flesh. And now that we've entered the negative world where we are now encountering real loss for our beliefs, the temptation to let those beliefs go is too great for my fellow millennials to bear. And it appears that Gen Z is going to be even worse. We are being led astray by simple questions of doubt, questions that have answers that can be found in the pages of Scripture, questions with answers in Scripture that have been asked for thousands of years. Answers to these questions have been asked since the beginning of time. But now that there is a net negative for these beliefs, these questions of doubt, that, have been, that haven't been a problem during the neutral world phase, have all of a sudden risen to the surface. These questions that nobody was asking during neutral world phase have seemingly become very popular very quickly in the negative world phase. And they have been very effective in dismantling nominal faith that was inherited from the previous generation. Now perhaps there are those of you who would say, you know what, Nate, I don't think you're being fair. This evaluation doesn't quite seem fair. You know, most people deconstructing aren't doing it because they want to sin. It's because they have real questions pertaining to the faith. And that there are those that have suffered real hurt in the church. And that that is what is causing them to walk away from the church. Because the church is full of hypocrites. Well, I certainly won't deny the fact that the church is full of hypocrites. But to blame the deconstruction of your own faith on the hypocrisy of others certainly won't save you from final judgment. Also, to say that we are not all being tempted to reject God because of our sin, 
That only proves that we don't have a biblical understanding of what sin and its effects on us as fallen creatures is. It proves that our worldview has been shaped more by popular cultural ethics than the unchanging word of God. Anytime we doubt God, if we doubt his goodness, if we doubt his love, if we doubt his graciousness, his holiness, even his righteous wrath, if we doubt any of his character, his revealed character, we are in sin just as much as if we were telling a lie. And the desire to worship a God that is not the one true God is the worst sin we could commit. In the end, that is what doubt is. It's a desire to worship something other than the one true God. Now, this doesn't mean we shouldn't ask questions. There is a fundamental difference between asking questions and having doubt. If you have a question, it can be answered by truth. If you have a doubt, truth might not be enough to soften your heart. So it is important that we bring our questions out into the light and deal with them. It's also, it should also be said that we should bring our doubts out. Just like any sin, we should bring it out into the open and deal with it. We should confess it, take it to the cross to be paid for. And we must admit that our desires to doubt the truth of God's word ultimately comes from our sin nature. This is why Peter continually exhorts us to abstain from the passions of the flesh and calls us to be holy because Christ is holy. The pursuit of holiness is the answer to our doubt. And the pursuit of holiness is only possible through the power of the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. It is, the only, it is only through the power of the gospel that we will be able to withstand the trials and temptations when they come. And for time's sake, I could speak about this for probably hours, and so I won't keep you for any longer talking about apologetics, but if you would like to talk more, I love talking about apologetics and could go on and on. Uh, it's, in a lot of ways, this sermon has been six years in the making. But we're going to keep going now in verse 15, where we are commanded to give our defense with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for good, for doing good, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. If we have truly understood and been changed by the gospel, we will desire to be self-controlled when we engage with others. Since God loved us even while we were actively sinning against him, then we will follow in his footsteps. Should we not should we not show love to others that sin against us? It could be easy for us to think that we are suffering for our holy behavior, that since we're suffering for our holy behavior, that we are now somehow entitled to treat others with disdain since our suffering is righteous. Yet, if we continually go back to the gospel, it should remind us and it should humble us. And this humility will allow us to respond graciously Following the example of Christ, he did not repay evil for evil, and neither should we. This should also put our attitudes in perspective. When we suffer or encounter loss, is our attitude an attitude of frustration toward God for putting us in this situation? I certainly don't want to downplay the weight of suffering by any means, but if our faith is true and our hope is secure, this does enable us to have true peace even during grief. It doesn't mean that we won't have moments of grief or despair, but it means that we won't stay there. We have the power to move on because we have hope. I believe this is why Peter tells us to defend our hope in verse 15. By defending our hope, we show that we have faith in a true and living God. 
a God that has power to give us life when it appears there is only death. Thankfully, Jesus has proven his victory over death by his resurrection, and we look forward to final resurrection when there will be no more shedding of tears. It is only by the power of this truth that we will be able to give gentle answers. But just because we give gentle answers, this does not guarantee a repentant heart for its hearers. In fact, quite the opposite is likely to happen. Even though you are gentle with the truth, the truth is still offensive. And this will likely cause the world to hate you even more. You will be slandered. You will be persecuted. But if we are faithful in our persecution, then all the more glory goes to God for his great work. The other night, I was watching the movie The Hiding Place with Jenna. It's based on the book The Hiding Place. And if you guys aren't familiar with it, it follows the true story of a Dutch family that hides the Jews from the Nazis during the Holocaust. The Ten Boom family is made up of an elderly father and I think it was four adult children. There were two, two boys and, and two girls. And eventually this family is caught and they themselves are sent to concentration camps. The two brothers and fathers were killed in camp. The story mainly follows the sisters from their perspective as they go through these concentration camps and it is told from the perspective of Corey Ten Boom, the only survivor of this uh, wicked, wicked thing that happened with the Holocaust. But there was a scene in the movie that really stuck with me. Betsy, one of the sisters, would often lead uh, the women in Bible studies, trying to offer hope to the women that were suffering in this camp. And during uh, this time, one of the ladies in their camp becomes very angry at the hope that Betsy is offering in Jesus Christ. As she doesn't understand how a God could be loving and omnipotent and allow her this immense suffering. There is some back and forth that happens in dialogue uh, with uh, Betsy and this, uh, this woman that's very uh, upset. But at the, end of the disgrunt- at the end, this disgruntled lady ends up being the better debater. And she kind of pins Betsy with a question that she can't answer. And she's left stumped. How, how, do, how can she answer for the fact that God would allow this to happen? Corey then steps in and admits that she doesn't have all the answers, but she knows that she can trust the goodness and faithfulness of God because his word is true, and it is not our place to always know the ways of God. This really stuck with me as what I think apologetics is really for. It is to prepare us to be hopeful sufferers, and that doing so will bring glory to God by displaying faithful, unshakable faith. Most of us, if we're honest, have probably struggled to be faithful in areas of our lives that would have cost significantly less than it cost Corey Ten Boom. Sometimes we struggle to maintain faithful Christian witnesses amongst neighbors that would cause us very little social suffering. Let us strive to be holy as Christ is holy and to maintain faithful Christian witnesses in all aspects of our lives and to be faithful sufferers full of hope when we are called. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and for more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.